Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together. Welcome to Forensic Miles. I'm Miles. Hey guys, it's Sean. And today we're going to be covering the the episode of Forensic Files called A Tight Leash. And I believe this is the second episode in the first season in the order that they are on Netflix. Because I, I don't know if you guys realize this, but the order on Netflix is not the order that they originally came out. So we're now going to go by the order on Netflix. Before we get started, I just wanted to make a couple notes. We've decided that we are going to start releasing our episodes on Tuesdays, so keep an eye out for that. Also, please remember to give us um, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and review, review us. All right, on that note, let's get started. Charlene Hummert was a 48-year-old mother of three who had been married to her husband, Brian, for more than 20 years. She worked for the state of Pennsylvania as an administrative assistant. And in the Forensic Files episode, her son, David Hummert, described her as a good mom, a kind and helpful woman with strong religious values. She really cared about her family. She really cared about her children. And really, at the end of the day, all she wanted was what was best for her. And I think at the end of the story, we will really tell that she would have done anything for her children. In 2001, Brian finds an em- envelope on the windshield of his car. Inside, they find something absolutely shocking. Within the envelope is a professional glamour shot of Charlene. So, you know, one that she would have gone to a professional photographer, gotten her photo taken. Um, I'll put this on the Instagram. Um, as well as a worrying letter calling Charlene a slut and threatening revenge. So I'm going to read that letter now. Here's the proof that your wife is a slut. Do what you will with it. Sorry it took so long. I only come occasionally back to the area on business. Mary Xmas, I will send you several copies of this so you get the information in case the slut intercepts one. Before I tell you how I got it, I want to tell you a little about myself. I played in a band back in the late 70s, early 80s. I had a one-nighter with your wife. She was a fine piece of ass that I enjoyed several times that night. A couple of days later, she made sure my fiancé found out. She dumped me and then had an abortion. 
We have since patched things up and gotten married, but she can't have children. I blame your wife for that. The time is now for payback. I hope to see your wife miserable the next time I am in the area. I ran into your wife in September at Gabriel Brothers. I almost didn't recognize her with her hair dyed, with her dyed hair. I've been following her around and hoping she would mess up. On October 6th, I followed your wife over to Capital City Mall. She was dressed up more than usual for a Saturday of shopping. She went into picture people. This was around 10 a.m. A couple of weeks later, I went in and got copies of the pictures enclosed. On the negative holder, she had written that the photo was a gift. There was no indication of which one she had printed up. I ask you, who was it for? Also, she does not have her wedding ring on. Why not? A red rose is a symbol of love. For who? I don't think you know about these, do you? Also, she has purchased a lot of sexy bras and panties. Have you seen them or the red nighty? Were they bought for your enjoyment? You may also want to ask her about her Spencer gift purchases. Do you love lubes with her? See, so you see once a slut, always a slut. That's a uh, pretty intense note to be left on my, uh, on the front windshield. I think I'd almost rather have a parking ticket instead of that note. <laughs> well, yeah, it's terrible. And it's also really terrifying because he's insinuating that he's been able to get these pictures somehow and he's been following her. And that's absolutely terrifying for the entire family. Yeah. Now, Charlene hasn't been having an affair and she makes that quite clear. Um, but they're terrified of this person because, you know, she has no idea who it, who it is. And they immediately report it to the police and the police put surveillance on her house. Unfortunately though, it didn't help. And more letters arrived. Understandably, the family was terrified and constantly on edge. David their son, said that a few times they even thought that there were people on the property, but nothing came of it. And, you know, nobody was caught in this incident. Police began to test the letters, but no fingerprints or evidence was discovered on them. They were absolutely stumped until another letter arrived. And this letter was completely terrifying. I mean, even more than the first letter. And really shocked the entire family. It said, hey, dumbass, I know about the camera. Your kids' friends have big mouths. I know somebody's house code is 7805. This is the third packet. I'm not really sure what that last line means, but they know the code to the family's home security system. Yeah. And they know that they have a security camera. So he's stalking like, neighbors and everybody he's listening to the children's friends talking about the house code or in other instances he's there he's close to them in the neighborhood absolutely so at this point i would be completely freaking out and i'm sure you know it would be really difficult to move from that house you've got three kids you've got your family um so really there wasn't anything they could do and they stayed in the house and the police continued to watch the area. But because of this stress from this event and constantly being on high alert, the marriage begins to have some problems and arguments become more and more common. 
On the night of March 19th, 2004, which is about two years from when these letters start, um, one of these arguments occurs. When the argument ended, Charlene made a call, and around midnight, her husband said that she left with a person that he assumed was the person that she had called. That night, her children were not home. However, they immediately knew that something was wrong. He tried to get in touch with his mother and called her multiple times but could never get in touch. That night, Brian reported his wife missing, and the police department issued an all-points bulletin for Charlene's white Land Rover SUV. It didn't take long for them to find it. On March 20th, police find her car in the supermarket parking lot. In the back of the car, they find Charlene's body, hidden under a blanket. She had died from ligature strangulation, and she had an interesting, distinct mark on her neck. At the time, police were unable to place where it had come from. Police said that she had been startled and strangled from behind, and there was nothing that she could have done. However, they did mention that because he was so close, they felt like she must have known this person. The family immediately thought they knew who had done it. It was obviously the person who was sending her those letters. I had to have been. I mean, she's got a stalker. This person has been kind of obsessing over her for years. Something must have happened, and he finally got his hands on her and his revenge. Oh, Thank you, Nola, for your input. I agree. During the autopsy, the forensic pathologist found something interesting. He discovered evidence that the crime scene had actually been staged. Uh There were two major clues that, you know, he came upon that made him make this statement. This was the next morning that they they found her? Mm Mm-hmm. First, Charlene's pants were on backwards, which, you know, insinuates that somebody else put the pants on her after she was dead. Yeah. The second was that she was wet. Nothing else in the car was wet, just her jacket, meaning that she must have gotten wet before she got into the car. He found a drag mark on her lower back with traces of dirt and gravel embedded with no evidence that she had been alive when it happened, meaning that she wasn't struggling there were no other marks on her body to show that she was trying to get away. Yeah. It was just this, you know, kind of cut on her lower back. After forensic testing, nothing unique could be found from the dirt and the gravel. However, police get another clue. Employees reach out to them. Um, employees of the grocery store reach out to the police and they mention that they had actually seen the SUV parked there before dawn. And investigators had an idea. What if the driver of the car had gone into the grocery store to seem less obvious and like they were up to something? Because if somebody had just come, dropped a car off, and then walked away, especially if employees were entering the store, they would have noticed and... Suspicious. Yeah, exactly. It might have been suspicious. So they were able to obtain the footage from the store, and they, they ended up finding somebody that looked extremely suspicious. A man seemed to be attempting to avoid the cameras. He was wearing a blue parka, a wool hat, and red gloves. And he only makes one purchase. Dog biscuits. Dog biscuits? At 
6 a.m. in the morning. Hmm. Now, we have dogs, and sometimes we have to get up really early and make emergency dog purchases, like when we run out of food and we've got to go and buy it really early. But I'll be honest, I probably will not be up at 6 a.m. to go and get dog biscuits. Yeah. Like, that's not a priority. I mean, get them later in the day, maybe at 10 a.m., but not at 6. Unfortunately, though, because of the quality of the footage, they are unable to distinguish who the man is. They aren't discouraged, though. They decide to send the image to a photogrammetrist. Photogrammetry uses a two-dimensional photograph um, to create a three-dimensional image. So first off, he has to go and ask the grocery store what dimensions their floor tiles are. Then they take take a photo of a height chart with the same camera that they were able to see this man on. And with this, they're able to distinguish the height of this mystery man. So he is five foot, five inches tall. They also weren't going to give up on those dirt samples. And they really felt that there had to be a connection with this dirt and the murderer. I mean, it was definitely not from where the car was. So it had to be from where she was murdered. They decide to send it to a forensic microscopist to see if he can find something that the forensic scientists weren't able to find. And he did. Using a tuning fork, like the ones that you use to tune instruments, the microscopist was able to extract evidence that wasn't able to be extracted before. He then compared this evidence to the dirt found in multiple locations, including um, in Charlene's driveway, um, and he got a match. The dirt matched the dirt in the Hummer family's driveway. He described it as a quote-unquote perfect match, and it had he'd never experienced anything as perfect as this was in the his dirt? whole career. The dirt? The match. Hmm. The dirt is dirt. They now knew that Charlene had been killed on or near her own driveway and had been dragged over it and put in her own car. Police issued a search warrant for the family home and a search ensued. They weren't disappointed with what they found. They found a piece of cable on the floor. The Hummert family used it as a dog leash. Investigators realized something. The distinct mark on Charlene's neck matched perfectly with a metal piece that was connected to this cable dog leash. Police conclude that the dog leash or something extremely similar was used to kill Charlene. Upon this discovery, Brian starts to change his statements on his wife's murder, and he immediately decides to put it on his son. He has his lawyers claim that David was the real killer of Charlene and that they had been in an argument. Huh. But investigators weren't done. They knew that this claim was absolutely not true. In fact, one of the prosecutors said that the insinuation was preposterous. They knew this could not be the case because of how close Charlene had been with all three of her children, but in particular with David. They had a really, really, really strong bond. Um, And they, you know, were very, very, very kind to each other. Is David the oldest? David is the oldest, um, and he was 18 at the time of the murder. Her relationship with her husband, Brian, however, was not great at all. 
Charlene was actually preparing to leave the marriage, which was not the first time that she had done this. Um, before she had claimed abuse um, from Brian towards the kids. So she had left before. She'd left this marriage before. And she was starting to get herself together to leave again when she was murdered. And then, all of a sudden, out of the blue, another letter arrives. And this one has a very interesting claim. It claims responsibility for the murder and was sent directly to the police department. And I'm also going to read this letter right now. I killed Charlene Hummer, not her husband. We had an affair for the past nine months. She wanted to break it off, so I broke her neck. I wrote letters to her husband and to De- Detective Looper. I used a white nylon rope to kill her. They won't find me. I am leaving. I am writing because of Easter. I am sorry I killed her. They won't find the cell phone she used to call me. It is in the river and not under my name. I carried her into the kitchen and then dragged her outside to her car. This is the fifth woman I killed. I am getting good at it. Cops have no idea how easy it is to pin a husband when they only look there. She knew about pictures on PC. She told story to set up husband for the divorce. Ha ha. Bye bye for now. John. So just to be clear, this letter is from a man named John and not the same as the letters that the Hummert family was receiving before from the quote unquote stalker. Um, This letter in particular is really scary. And to be honest, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Zodiac letters. Yeah, this is, it's weird that it's from a somebody else than the previous letters because what's the likelihood yeah but the police start to get a little bit creative and they decide to send the letters to a forensic linguist dr robert um, leonard who was actually a founding member of the rock and roll group sha na he said his um, first experience of forensic linguistics was reading the contracts for the group. Um, and he said that it was really interesting to him that, you know, what was written wasn't oft- often what the contract meant. Hmm. Must be really nice to be able to read contracts that way. Yeah. <laughs> when comparing the stalker letters to the letter that arrived at the police department, Dr. Leonard was able to find a clue a unique uh, rhetorical clue in both letters known as ironic repetition, which is basically using the same verb in two consecutive sentences, but not changing the context. For example, in this letter, it said um, she wanted to break it off. So I broke her neck. So it's using the same word, but in two different, using it for two different meanings. Dr. Leonard concluded that the letters were actually written by the same person. So Uh if this person is the stalker or the killer, it doesn't matter. It's the same person. Dr. Leonard then looked at a writing sample known to be Brian's. And although he didn't find the ironic repetition, he did find something else. Negative contractions, um, but no positive contractions. He, Dr. Leonard mentioned, mentioned that most people use both. And the only person that Dr. Leonard had ever seen only using negative contractions in his entire career was Brian Hummer. Hmm. What's more, Brian matched the height of the unknown male in the grocery store. And a blue parka was found in his home with a receipt 
in the pocket. And guess what the receipt was for? The dog biscuits. The dog biscuits. They also found evidence um, that Brian had written the letters on his computer. So this whole... He did it on his own computer. He did it on his own computer that was in his own home. Oh, they weren't doing like a handwriting sample. They were just trying to find like grammatical... So the letter was handwritten. Um, I'm not sure why they didn't do a handwriting analysis, but um, they were looking at the grammar. Yeah. The investigation lasted seven months before they finally made this arrest. Um, Brian was arrested at his job and charged with criminal homicide, hindering apprehension or prosecution, tempering with or tampering with or fabricating physical evidence and false reports to law enforcement. Prosecutors believed that Brian saw his marriage falling apart and that if he would write these letters to scare his wife, he could be the hero and reconnect with her. However, the letters only caused arguments and prosecutors believed that Charlene might have known that he was sending that he was the one sending the letters. After this big argument that happened, Brian snapped, grabbed the closest item he could find, and strangled Charlene, dressed her, and dumped her car, her car and the body at the grocery store. Brian was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. David originally never believed that his father could have done this, but it didn't take long for his mind to be changed. They had solid evidence showing that his father was the one that had killed his mom. Mm -hmm. In 2019, on an episode of I Lived with a Killer, David finally spoke out about his father. Although from the outside, it might have seemed like Brian was a wonderful father, the truth was far off. David said that Brian was violent and Charlene was actually stashing money to escape with her children at the time of her death. Yikes. David said that at one point, his father broke his nose with a bike frame. So he actually threw a bike frame at David's face and broke his nose. So Brian clearly had some extreme anger issues. Seems like, you know, rational thing to do. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Here's a quote from The Sun. But on the evening of March 19th, 2004, David then 18, and his teenage sister sister Tracy went out, leaving Brian and Charlene alone in the house. David says, I was out until approximately 4 a.m. When I came back, my dad was up, sitting in his computer room with all the lights off. I asked him why he was still up, and he said that he and my mother had gotten into a fight, and she left, and he was waiting for her to come home so they could talk about it. I was pretty tired and just wanted to go to bed and figured it, if it was anything super serious, she would have called me or texted me or something. But the following morning, when Charlene still hadn't returned home, David began to panic. David said, it just didn't feel right. David said immediately when his father stopped cooperating with police, he knew something was wrong. He said that Brian started acting differently, treating him kind of nice, saying if he needed anything, he would help. It wasn't right. Like, Brian offered to buy David a car, which was very uncharacteristic. Um, And, you know, David picked up on it. One extremely interesting thing I found about the trial is that Brian's sister, Tracy, actually sided with her father. She refused to help in the investigation. And when she was on the stand, she insinuated that David could have done it. 
and that he had a temper. The murder basically ended the family, and David says he hasn't spoken to either his sister or his brother since the trial, which is absolutely terrible. And it just goes back to this, you know, when these crimes happen, they affect way more than just the victim or the murderer. They affect the whole family. You know, Brian's and Charlene's children lost everything that they knew that day that Brian decided to kill his wife. And it's just an absolutely awful thought. They lost both their parents. They lost both their parents and they lost each other. And they lost each other. Yeah. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, like I said, next week we will be releasing on Tuesday. Clear the schedules now. <laughs> um, so we can't wait to talk to you then. Check you guys later. Bye.